The cuckoo clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. <laughs> and open the door to join us for the 34th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I am the limber lemur Meredith. And I'm a tapas loving tapir Mike. We meet every week at our clubhouse. We like to call the Dalmatian Station. Roar! Roar! Talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom, Animalia. What a whimsical opening that was, Mike. Thank you. You're welcome, Meredith. Thank you for allowing me to express my love of animals through my whimsy. Oh, like two two better things have never been paired, animals and whimsy. I like to say that's like the the guiding force of this podcast. Animals and whimsy. Yeah. And Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> the AWW. Yeah, shout out to Wikipedia. Maybe we should donate. I have. They they contacted me, or they didn't contact me, but they did say, like, you know, we noticed that you use this, like, every day. Might you consider donating? And I was like, yeah, you got me. I do use it literally <laughs> multiple times every day. So I, did, I think I threw them, like, five bucks. Yeah, I think Wikipedia represents really, like, what the internet does best, that sort of democratized centralization of information, free-for-all sort of thing. And, of course, there are those asterisks of, well, how peer-reviewed is it and everything, right. but it's at, it's at least an aggregator to help you go in a direction. Absolutely. And as people who have spent times in libraries, yes. you know, is, and, and grew up as the internet was developing, it's just such an incredible thing. And, you know, I think when I was still in school, it was still so new that you really couldn't trust right. it. Right, You know, and I think learning that was really valuable. Mm-hmm. But digging through card catalogs and everything like that is just so cumbersome and time-consuming. Right. And I guess that there's, you know, I don't know. Do Are we going to go into a, a you know... <laughs> a critique Dionysian the- versus Apollian, <laughs> you know, <laughs> approaches to learnedness and life, I guess. Wait, so would the Dionysian side be Wikipedia and card catalogs or Apollonian? I think that's what I'm saying, yes. (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) Like, initially when I first started teaching, I would get annoyed when kids would cite it in their papers, despite being like, you can't use Wikipedia. But now I'm just very, well, when I am teaching, which I'm not these days, but it's like, Please, by all means, use it as a springboard. Like, start there. It has typically all of, like, the links that will take you to an actual source. So, like, by all means, use it. Embrace it. It's definitely helped us open lines of inquiry. (laughs) Absolutely, mon ami. Oui. But I just have to share a little animal encounter. It was from two weeks ago, and I forgot to talk about it last week. But it was so cute. So we were at Costco multiple times trying to get new phones. But anyway, that's a whole other story on animal related. But one of the times we were there, 
waiting for the like, Verizon guy, there was a little sur- a little black lab service dog in training. That's adorable. I know, and like like in that puppy phase when the paws are like too big and too uncontrollable. And she was so slidey on the floor. Like she couldn't stand up because her paws would just like literally like slide out, like splay out on every side of her. And she would just, she would just stop walking and then just like, like kind of melt into a puddle on the floor. And her trainer was even like, oh, it's fine. You can come pet her. We were standing there waiting around anyway. So I just got to like play with this adorable puppy. But I will say she wasn't as playful as she was kind of just like mopey. Sure. So I think our um, hypothesis from way, way back as far as concerning Labrador retrievers, is it true that blondes have more fun? I think yes. Yeah. This one proved the point. She was pretty, despite being a puppy and like super cute. I wouldn't say she was like the most playful. Like she just kind of wanted to lay on the ground and and that was about it. Yeah, I maintain that I don't think black labs are not fun, but I just think that the blonde ones are the funnest ones. Yeah. And the brown ones are kind of dopey, but the black ones are like austere. Yes, she looked like she was going to grow up to be a very serious and solid service dog. I love that. Yeah. I saw a cute Labrador video of this thick with two C's Labrador rolling around in a backyard and it's legitimately looks like a bear rolling on its back and then it flips over and it's a Labrador retriever. It's very funny. Oh, cuties. Oh, they're so fun. Also regarding Labrador puppies with the big paws. Yes. So I've seen recently an article about, you know, racist language and the term spirit animal that we've all been saying. Yes. As being problematic in terms of with indigenous persons. Yes. I'm not going to identify it as a spirit animal, but I will say animal that matches my spirit. Obviously, as somebody that knows me, you know that I would go with the gray wolf. Of course. And then also, obviously, as somebody who knows me, you know that all dogs are actually gray wolves. Right. So Labradors are a form of gray wolves. There's, you know, a breed, a subspecies or whatever. And so amongst them, I feel that Labrador puppies with the big paws that are kind of dopey and don't realize how big they are and just run into stuff all the time and fall over. I feel that's the animal that most closely matches my spirit. Oh, I totally hear that. And I could totally see that. I've kind of felt similarly about myself in that, um, yeah, again, I'm not going to use that term spirit animal, but I've always identified, oddly enough, like not so much with a cat, though there are aspects of me that are very cat, but Ultimately, like Golden Retriever, similarly because they're just dopey and goofy, kind of clumsy at times, love to run around in the yard. I mean, check, check, check. Yeah, you are definitely giving a strong Golden Retriever vibe. Especially when my hair is down. I mean, get me off leash and let me run, you know? Yeah. And let me also note that I am certainly not blonde. I am, in fact, raven haired. (laughs) So I would be among the austere black haired Labrador puppies. Just kind of confused. But you've got that like erudite, like serious side to you. So I think it makes sense. Yeah. You are also very goofy and playful at the same time. For sure. (laughs) So I saw a video on the internet, Meredith, and it was of a sea turtle. (gasps) And the sea turtle was on its back. And the thrust of the video is that this police officer in Australia goes over and flips this sea turtle that was on its back onto its plastron, which is its ventral surface, its stomach, if you will. It's catcher's catcher's mitt, or no, catcher's protection. Yeah, the catcher's pad. Catcher's pad. 
And then the officer kind of forcefully shoves the sea turtle back towards the sea, even though it had started already kind of headed in that way itself. But then the sea turtle does eventually get into the sea when the police officer leaves it alone. And I just thought that in this moment where we're discussing police brutality, perhaps we can address this with an animal analogy. Okay. Whereas the sea turtle on its back is society and it has a problem. And so then the police officer comes along and flips the turtle on its back over onto its plastron, thus resolving the acute issue that society was facing of this, oh, no, I'm going to die right now. Right, right. I'm helpless. But then the officer went where I thought was a bridge too far Mm -hmm. by shoving and assaulting this sea turtle to get back into the sea faster, even though the turtle's world had just been flipped, turned upside down. Right. And it was headed towards the water itself. Right. It was already going to do it. It didn't need. And then when the officer let the turtle get to the water, he posed with like a thumbs (gasps) up and like, yeah. And like flexed his muscle a little bit. Like, yeah, the turtle got back into the water. And so, In this analogy, I just feel like maybe the police, although there are ways in which they are helpful in a society, that they could just stop right before they start physically forcing the society to behave in the way that they perceive to be correct. Right. If you will. Right. And instead, just kind of stand back and, you know, let people be people rather than abuse them. I think that's a great analogy. And not only abuse them, but then go back and, like, pose for a picture as if they, you know, that they're the savior in that instance. Right. Right. And, you know, it is Australia where things are a little wild and, you know, sometimes animals are not quite as demure as humans. But, like, you fixed the problem. You didn't need to then also kind of push the turtle around a little bit. You could have just, like, dealt with the problem. You didn't have to escalate Exactly. Exactly. Like, take a step back from your humanness, sir. Like, you don't need to show that turtle, like, who's in charge. That turtle isn't quite in charge and quite in control and doing just fine without you. Affirmative. The only other real note I have, Meredith, is that I've been going on walks at night lately because it's so freaking hot. And there's less pigeons that are trying to poop on me when I'm on my night walks than on my day walks. They are all nestled into their their little nests up in the trees, their little nests in derelict buildings so you are safe yeah cleared for walking my friend what a blessing yeehaw well meredith do you want to just get into it i would love to i can't wait to see what you have for me today all right well let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer ready okay taxana you taxana we taxana who taxana me kingdom animalia show's called animal fan club Cordata, spine times the right time. Class. Reptilia, endothermic tetrapods. Order. Crocodilia, chomp, chomp, chomp. Family. Gaviolidae, only one extant species. Genus. Gavialis, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, rivers. Species. Gangeticus, gariels. It's a crocodilian with a long, thin snout. Wait, are these? Yeah, the ones that with the long, thin snouts. <laughs> Just like you said. Yes, exactly like I said. These are crocodilians, and they have a long, thin snout that's narrower than what we would think of as a typical crocodile or alligator, what we know to be typical crocodiles or alligators. Yeah. 
You may have seen something like this before in lots of places. I think I have. I'm not sure what I'm thinking of or where I would have seen it, but it's like one of those things when you described it in that way, long, thin snout. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know anything about those guys. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an iconic shape, you know, like you've definitely would recognize. Yeah. Well, before we get into more about its morphology, let's talk some tax facts. Okay. So the order is crocodilia. That is all crocodilians. And then that divides into families because, you know, crocodiles are very ancient species. In your animal fact finder, they may be listed as an ancient species, Mm -hmm. but it does also have the reptile designation. So who's to say? So we have... The order Crocodilia, and then the family is Gaviolidae, and that's Argarials, are the only extant species in that order. Okay. But there are other orders. There's the order Breverostris, which then divides into alligators and crocodiles. Okay, got it. So Argarials are a different family from alligators and crocodiles. Oh, okay. They diverge further up in a taxonomic way. I see. Okay. That was going to be my next question. So they're members of the same order as all crocodilians, but then the next division of family, the next major division of family, is to the Gaviolidae, which is Argarials, and then alligators and crocodiles are Breverostris. Doesn't that sound like a Harry Potter spell? Luminescence Breverosis. It's Breverostras, not Beverostris. <laughs> Shout out to Hermione. She always knew. Those boys were dumb. They were dumb. Okay, so we've talked about its snout, but it's generally olive-colored. The young are lighter in colors and have dark brown crossbands and speckles. And then their backs turn almost black around age 20. Oh. But the belly stays yellowish-white. Okay. Do you have a lifespan on these guys? So, like, at what point... Like, where is 20 for them? Is that, like, a teenager or, like, older? I don't know. In crocodile years, what are we talking? Oh, I don't have lifespan. I want to know how old the Gary old get. They mature around 15 to 18 years of age okay. for the males. No exact word on when the females mature. But I have to say, I went on this swamp boat river ride in Florida that we've talked about before when I was there. Yeah. And they were discussing alligators and they said for the alligators in the swamp, a good rule of thumb is they grow one foot per year and that it takes them until they're around seven feet or so that they start reproducing. And I don't know that the gharial grows at the same rate or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but I do have some more about the typical size of a gharial, if you're curious about that. I'm very curious. Well, the females, they mature at a length. It says about eight and a half feet is the period where they mature. And the males mature usually around 13 feet. That is so long. It's pretty long. That's crazy. The longest gharials on record are... uh, Pretty long. In August of 1920, a 21-and-a-half-foot specimen was killed. And there are male gharials with alleged lengths of 23-and-a-half to 30 feet <laughs> that were sighted around the turn of the 20th century in rivers in India. However, this, this species is very endangered now, so there's not as many individuals 
So I don't really think that there are probably any that are quite that extreme length anymore. That is like sea monster status, you know? I mean, a 30-foot crocodile is a pretty intense quantity of crocodile. Yes. That's more crocodile than I need. That's like a <laughs> school bus-sized crocodile. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking for, maybe because it's summer and I really just want to go to a pool. But I was thinking of it in terms of like how, you know, the deep end in the pool or like the really deep end where the, the diving boards are. Like, isn't that typically like 10, 15 feet? Yeah. So if you put the gharial like on his tail, like his head and little dumb arms would still be out of the water. Well, I think we disagree about whether his arms are dumb or cute. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, pretty much that's not wrong. My apologies. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. We'll get through it. So we've talked a lot already about their long, narrow snout. Their name comes from this hollow, bulbous nasal protuberance that grows at the top of the nose on the males. Oh. It resembles an earthen pot that's locally known as agara. And that's how they got their name (laughs) because the people were like, oh, the snout of that crocodilian kind of looks like this clay pot that we have a name for. So we call the creature that thing because we're all like, oh, yeah, it has the thing on its nose. I was just thinking it's like the myth of the gharial would be there was... There was the mother, Ariel, and the dad, Gary. And together, they met under magical circumstances. Like, Ariel was a crocodile, and Gary was like a long-snouted angel. And together, they they begat the Gariel. This is a sexual dimorphism, and the gharial is the only extant crocodilian that has a sexual dimorphism that's visible. I already said the body length things. Oh, I actually have this here. So the females mature at a body length of about eight and a half feet and will grow up to about 14 and a half feet. And males mature at a body length closer to 10 feet and grow up to lengths of 20 feet typically. Dang. Yeah. It's kind of a lot how big they are. Like, I don't know. I'm still hung up on this 30-foot crocodile. Alleged. You know it wasn't 30 feet, though. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's like for every year that passes, another inch is added to the legend. (laughs) Sure. Sure. So as I said, the species is endangered. It was once a thriving species in the major river systems of northern India, the northern India subcontinent. And it's, you know, typical story, human hunting, human habitation, human egg feasting upon, all of that just completely decimated the species. But there have been conservation efforts since the 1970s to reintroduce them and help develop populations. And the 2017 estimates were about 900 individuals alive in the wild. Wow. Which is not, that's not that much. No. Wait, say that number again? 900. Oh, sorry. I was looking up pictures of gharials. I understand why you would find that distracting. They're, they're kind of cute, aren't they? Wait, how do you spell it? I'm not having any success. Oh, okay. It's like it's like Ariel, but completely different. <laughs> it's G-H-A-R-I-A-L-S. Yep. Yeah, these, th- these are the ones. There's some great gharial YouTube content. Oh, they're fun. They're fun. I didn't do enough research into other crocodilians to be able to really tell you what other 
crocodilians have snouts shaped like that, and there must be some of them. So that's a line of inquiry that I'm opening for us and our listeners. Totally. You know, it's interesting. Like, their heads are kind of um, turtle-like almost. Like, the way the eyes are situated. It's like if you took a turtle and then, like, took his snout and just stretched it, stretched it, stretched it, and then added a bunch of, like, tiny little teeth, little saw teeth all around the perimeter. I mean, yeah, that was a pretty apt description. It <laughs> Here's why it just has a picture of a gharial, and it says, WTF, don't boop the snoot. Well, you shouldn't. Don't boop that snoot. Well, you want to know what that snoot is used for, Meredith? Yes. That snoot is used to make a hissing sound that can be heard 75 feet away from the gharial. Shut up. No, I swear Demonstrate. to God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, almost like a nose kazoo. I wish I had a kazoo handy. Ooh. My kazoo's at my desk. It's in my other pants. Well, damn it. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that the gharials are using this hissing sound relating to their courtship or, you know, territorial method and use this as a seg into crocodile romance. God bless it. So, like I, you know, we've been discussing this a lot already today. We're talking 15 to 18 years, kind of human maturity, about 13 feet in length, kind of mm-hmm. two humans <laughs> in length. And they use their gara to indicate sexual maturity and will bubble underwater <laughs> or for, you know, other sexual behaviors. Mm. The courting starts in mid-February, which is like the end of the cold season. They'll find sites like in the riverside sand to make their nests. And then they will lay eggs between March and early April, like end of March, early April. And typical clutch sizes are anywhere from 20 to 95 eggs. Okay. Wow. Also, the largest eggs of all crocodilians, an average weight of five and a half ounces and like three and a half inches long and like two and a half inches, three inches around. So almost like kind of like grapefruit sized almost like somewhere between like a navel orange and a grapefruit wow that is big yeah they'll hatch after 71 to 93 days of incubation usually in july right before the onset of monsoon season get out before you get flooded for real and then the sex is most likely determined by temperature which is true in most reptiles interesting yeah i don't know much about that but you know we're talking cloacas it's like you kind of got to get up in there to see what's going on. You know, you can't just, unless you can see the Gara. That's true. That's true. We're talking cloacas should be like a talk show. Sounds definitely like something we should host. A spinoff. Yeah, maybe. Our audience is hungry for more content. Yeah, maybe one week, week instead of going to the clubhouse, we can go to the soundstage and host Talk About Cloacas. I love that. We're accepting applications for people who want to produce that. Yes. The hatchlings will be about a foot in body length and weigh like three to four and a half ounces. After two years, they'll be about like two to four feet long, two and a half to four feet long. And then after three years, they'll be like up to five feet long. So they get kind of big kind of quick. So that's almost, that seems to be approximately twice the growth rate of a typical American alligator for your back-of-the-envelope calculations. Right. (laughs) They're very well adapted to eating fish underwater because they have 
those teeth and their long snout interlocks. So there's very little resistance in the water. Yeah. So it can kind of just go and chomp on it. Right. And then it doesn't really chew its prey, but it'll just swallow it whole. I know somebody else who does that. I'll introduce them when it's my turn. Oh. They mostly prey on fish, but they'll also eat snakes, turtles, birds, mammals, and dead animals. Yeah, they're just like equal opportunity eaters. Right. I always found that to be like an interesting thing. And I think this is about like species that have just been around forever and ever. The more, um, I guess, picky you are as an eater, (laughs) less specialized and just kind of all opportunity, whatever, I'll eat it. I mean, obviously... It seems like such a dumb thing to say, but it just, it increases your chances of like very long-term survival as a species. Right. Well, because there's just more biodiversity. It's like diversifying your portfolio for stock investors. Right. Well, you know, that's kind of all I really have about this right now, honestly. I felt very last minute Louie over here preparing this, but I feel like that was you know, a little bit of fun information. I Oh, I want to talk about scoots, Meredith, before we go. Oh, I love scoot talk. Yeah, so, you know, the scoots are those kind of spiny things on the back that crocodilians don't have scales. Right. Unlike squamates. Squamates are true lizards, like the skinky day and other true lizards. <laughs> and then snakes are also lizards. They're also squamates. It's the scales are the defining feature of the squamata. Right. I've always imagined squamanes as being only for skinks, but I just instantly thought of it as, like, also for snakes. And a wig on a snake is very funny. Oh, my gosh. Well, after... When we're done here, I have to send you my favorite Instagram post of all time. It's not a snake wearing a wig, per se, but it is a snake wearing a few strands of cooked spaghetti. So it looks like a wig. I like that. It's my favorite. So the scoots aren't scales, but they're those kinds of like raised things on their back that are pretty cool. Meredith, were we talking about another animal that had scoots recently? That was kind of surprised me because I I brought up crocodilians in response. I think it was the mud skipper. It was probably the mud skipper. I think the, yeah, I think the mud skipper might've had some scoots. Do you have any crocodile queries that I could probably not know the answer to? I don't think I do. I think you've answered everything, to be honest. But I'm so glad you did this because this is always an animal that I've like noted, you know, visually because they are so distinguished from their crocodile relatives, given how long and narrow their snoot is. Yeah. Um. So I'm just so glad you did this so I can learn more about them. Yeah, they're fun. I feel like I saw. I feel like I've seen a lot of images in like natural history museums of those sorts of crocodilians with the long slender. Yeah. So I'm curious to learn more about extinct crocodilians and how their snoot circumstance relates to this snoot circumstance. Oh my gosh. I'm just, I'm so full of this tonight, but snoot circumstances, that also sounds like a great segment and or soap opera, a snoot opera. We can't give these ideas away for free, man. I'm sorry. Somebody's going to steal our million-dollar ideas. I'm sorry. This stuff just writes itself. I get so excited. Well, let's take a break so you can... I can jot all this down, and I can get it licensed before anybody makes money off of it, before I do. I love it. It's a <laughs> snoot circumstance. A do 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 A snoot circumstance. <laughs> 
break. Golly, Greer, what an attractive paw bag. Thanks, Leslie. My little hands are usually so taxed from carrying briefcases for the prestigious law firm of Bovidae, Anura, and Marmot. Yeah, I hear they always make the marmots carry the briefcases. Well, I have to admit it's harder for our bovine and anurin partners to manage such a burden, but I thought I deserved to look fashionable during my off hours. Well, I'd say you achieved your goal, Greer. Thanks, Leslie. I did graduate from law school, so I'm clearly dedicated to achieving my goals. Now, let me ask you one question, Greer. Okay. Is lemur baton only paw bags, or do they offer other accessories for small mammals? I'm so glad you asked, Leslie. They have a complete line, including wallets, trunks, shoes, watches, and other accessories. OMG, that is thrilling. I know. Now I have plenty of cute fashion so I can spend my big deal lawyer money. Where do I buy? Simply log on to the Brand Clubby web portal and you'll be transported to the Lemur Vuitton web center where you can order items. There's a 10-day no-questions-barked return policy and you can group orders with other Brand Clubby products to save on shipping. Brand Clubby has never failed to amaze me with their creativity and generosity. Well, gird yourself because you can use code MARMOT15 to save 15% at checkout. I'm logging on right now. Happy shopping. And don't forget to pick up some gifts for your friends and loved ones. Pets I wish you had also 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 met. Also I wish you had also met. Well, welcome to, you guessed it, another segment of Pets I Wish You Had Also Met. Perfect. Mike's here. Oh, God. Meredith, my hair is down tonight. This is like such a wonderful moment. I know. I'm having a great time. Yeah, me too. Meredith, I've been looking forward to this one because I'm going to talk about Gomer Cat. (gasps) Oh. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. Gomer had so many songs. We wrote a lot of songs about Gomer back in the day. Meredith's boyfriend, Anthony, lived with our mutual friend, Justin. And Justin had a cat, and that cat's name was Gomer. And Gomer came from Texas to Cincinnati with Justin. Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of things you can say about Justin, that he's one of the most naturally talented musicians I've ever met in my entire life. And yes. that it just like talk about one of those people that's just hit with that lightning bolt of talent. I'm always like he won a concerto competition at a major American conservatory on his fourth woodwind double. I know. Like, he plays multiple woodwind instruments and he like won a concerto competition on instruments that other people played exclusively and he beat them for yeah. this concerto. It's really remarkable. It speaks a lot to his just natural ability and work ethic and love of music. But I don't know that he was the best cat dad <laughs> that has ever existed. And I don't I don't know that Gomer got necessarily the attention or love that maybe Gomer expected, although it was probably what Justin was capable of sharing with Gomer at that point. You know, and I mean, grad school, we were all super busy, you know. Right. And I remember at one point towards the end of our time there, Justin went into the closet and there was a stack of music, boxes and boxes and boxes of sheet music that belonged to Justin. And Gomer had been using that as a litter box for some time. Yes. And so all of these scores, all this music that he had accumulated, his entire music library, he had to deal with because it all smelled like cat urine. 
And I just thought that that was one of the silliest moments that has ever happened in yeah history in my life. It was just kind of like, ooh, you got got. Like, <laughs> Gomer know. got you. Yeah, we we call that, we, we still refer to that as Gomer's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really very funny. There's only so long you can, like, grab your cat by the scruff so as to give him, like, a crazy grimace face and or feed him, like, value cat food before he will enact Gomer's revenge. The reason for Gomer's revenge, though, was, like, there was a reason. It was the door on his litter box got stuck, so he, like, couldn't get into his litter box. And oh, so as a result, he just started pooping anywhere and everywhere that wasn't the litter box inside that closet. And this was for, like, weeks. So that closet is probably still, like, class A toxic zone. <laughs> oh, but Gomer, I have a secret love for Gomer. It's not secret at all, but I... When you guys went to Spoleto, you and Justin, yeah, to Italy, uh, Anthony and I took care of Gomer, obviously. And Gomer, I will say, he became like a different cat. He was very affectionate and very loving and like always wanted to be on your lap, in bed with you. And he was very sweet. He was very, very different. And he would like, when you would pet him, he'd go like, <laughs> he was so yeah. cute. I loved Gomer. He was a cute cat. He was a good cat. He was a sweet cat. He was. What happened to Gomer? Because Justin went on tour and then Gomer went somewhere else. Gomer went to live with, I think, a friend of his mom's. This is actually a very sad story. I feel almost like Justin should be telling it. But I guess it was. Well, let's let's put a pin in it then and save it for when Justin comes, yes. comes on. Because we have to have Justin on it. Absolutely. Somewhere. Yeah. So we'll just, we'll save that story. So we can do a... um epilogue to this episode or this segment of pets i wish you had also met for justin to finish the story yeah this is now we have to invite justin on so this is perfect it is perfect i guess this is gonna be like a a very feline edition of this shocker shocker right because i've just never talked about claude my sweet kitty cat who i see every day all day here living at my mom's house so Claude came into my life actually right around the time that I became friends with all of you. So like you and Anthony and Justin. So like right around when I met Gomer is when we got Claude because our um, former family cat Midnight had passed away in like February. And then it was like a very long winter for me, like not having a cat around and school was always stressful. Um, so I was on this like what I called the kitten campaign to try to get my parents to get us a new cat. And then finally, it was like right before Easter, we got my little Claude. And he's the best. He's the sweetest little kitty cat. And he's very scared of everybody. But um, he's a flame tip short hair. So he's like creamy colored, but has like red ears and face and tail. He's very cute. That's adorable. Yeah. And he um, loves his belly rubbed. Don't we all? <laughs> and he's actually named after Claude W.C., the composer, because I'm a super nerd. That's a good name, though. Claude is a sturdy name. Yeah, his name was Dandelion when we got him, which was also pretty cute. So his full name is Claude Dandelion Van Dam Jurgens. Van Dam is a good choice for a confirmation name. <laughs> this is confirmation name. <laughs> <laughs> Catholic cats. Yeah. They... They feel all the guilt. They, they, do. they do it anyways, but they feel guilty about it. Exactly. 
I don't think Claude feels guilty about much. He literally bit my mom's arm tonight because he wanted chicken. We were like eating dinner and he like leaped up and bit her arm. <laughs> it's like you little Crazy. bitch. But anyway, I love him. He's my baby. Yeah, he sounds great. He's great. So that's it. What a great segment of Pets I Wish You Had Also Met. They're always great. Go Mets. <laughs> Go Reds. I'm wearing my red shirt right now. Pets I wish you had also met. 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 Pets I wish you had met. Also met. Yes. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who. Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. If you like creatures, you come to the right place. Phylum. Chordata. Spines are sublime. Class. Aves. Not all birds fly. Order. Cassuera forms. Big old birds, y'all. Family. Cassuaridae. It's a three-species family. Genus. Cassuarius. It's a three-species genus. Species. Cassuarius. Cassuarius. She's a man killer. It's a southern cassowary. We've had the southern screamer. Now we have the southern cath- cassowary. 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 And it's not something you take to your church picnic. It's a deadly bird. It's like something that a witch would have to do to like a spell. Do they cast it or do they wary it? It's caster wary. I feel like witches would be really into these birds because they're very intense. And I kind of got the idea for this because the other day my mom was just like scrolling on Facebook on her phone. And just I heard her like freaking out about the shoe bill, which we have covered. Yeah, we've definitely talked shoe bills. She's never seen one before. And she's like, this bird is a dinosaur. That's a dinosaur. Because they look so like, so closely linked to, you know, their ancient reptile relatives. And I think this is another bird that just establishes such a clear, like visual link between birds and ancient reptiles. The cassowary. Do you know what these look like? No. Oh, please Google. How do you spell it? It is C-A-S-S-O-W-A-R-Y. Oh, it kind of looks like a big goofy emu. It does. And there's a reason for that. So they are related. And I'll talk about that momentarily. But it's mostly like that thing on its head. It's called a cask. C-A-S-Q-U-E. And so casks can come in like many different shapes and sizes. Like if you can think about the hornbill. So it kind of looks like a toucan with like an extra like compartment on top of its long beak. Uh-huh. That's also called a cask, even though it's situated in a different spot on the bird head than what we have with the cassowary. But it's essentially this long, thin thing that kind of rises up like a mohawk on the um, cassowary's head. And it's kind of like a spongy texture, but then covered in keratin. So again, keratin, King Keratin, save us all. Yeah. Keratin unites us all. Keratin keeps it together. It does. It's like a floppy thing. It's almost like a coxcomb sort of thing. It's not like a nasal cavity. No. It's not like my gara. No, is it? it's not a nasal cavity. And they're kind of unsure biologically what function it serves. I mean, one of the videos I watched said it was to like protect it from falling fruit. But I was like, no. Yeah, sure. That doesn't that doesn't really make sense. But anyway, it's like a cutesy design for something like that. That's not right. What that is, it was it made for like a great 
YouTube animation, but I don't really trust it. But anyway, yeah, they're kind of rigid. And it's also believed that they might kind of indicate age and maturity in an animal. Because I think like the older it gets, the more developed and like high, closer to God, <laughs> the cask is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, cassowaries. And then they also kind of had an internet moment, I think, because in 2019, um, some captive cassowaries in Florida actually murdered their keeper. But I'll talk about that at the end. Wow. Yeah. Way to make sure that nobody leaves <laughs> before the end of the show. That's how we do it here at the Dalmatian Station. So I mentioned it's like a three-species family. It's a three-species genus. So... There are two other cassowaries. There's the dwarf cassowary. That's the smallest, Avi. And then there's the northern cassowary. And those are roughly the same size, but I think generally less, they weigh less than the southern cassowary. The southern cassowary is the second largest bird in the world, second only to the ostrich. So I'll just quickly describe their appearance, even though I have talked about the cask. Because ostriches are so charismatic and recognizable, if you will. I will. It's easy to kind of think about the body of the ostrich when you're imagining the cassowary, if you don't know what they look like. So it's this big, hulking, hulking body. I don't even see wings on them, so I'm not even sure if they have wings, but if they are, they're useless because these are flightless birds. Okay. Unlike the shoebill who could fly. Right. They've got long black, like their whole hulking bodies are black with like strong bristly plumage. And then their necks and their faces are bright blue. But the southern cassowary is different from the dwarf and northern cassowary because they've got these two long waddles and they're bright red that kind of dangle off of the neck. Fun. So if you can think of like a turkey waddle, it's like that, but they're like longer and more pronounced. So it just looks like big skin flaps hanging off, <laughs> wiggling around like bingo flaps. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's really kind of fun. They're birdie bingo flaps. I talked about plumage, the cask, blah, blah, blah. Okay, the feet are so weird. So under these big hulking bodies, you've got the feet that kind of like the ostrich are kind of set far back on the body. It looks like the center of gravity would be like difficult to manage. But anyway, they've got these massive feet and they're what Anthony and I would refer to as three prongers. So they've got like three toes. Uh huh. And on the innermost of the three toes, it's like, so you've got normal toe, normal toe, and then one that just looks like a big, long, like blade. It's so strange looking. So it's like, if you think about like a normal finger, right? And then the nails at the end, if you can kind of translate that visually in your head to like what a bird talon would look like. So like the nails are like the talon part. Uh-huh. That innermost digit is just all talon. Like it's all sharp, scrapey, scrape, fuck you up stuff. It's almost from like a science fiction movie, like a character that has had a finger yes. replaced with a talon. Yes. It's so scary to look at. And typically birds are considered digitigrade, right? Like walking up on their toes. But I don't know if these things are officially plantigrade, but when you look at them, it looks like the heel is on the ground and then the feet or like the toes are kind of spread out like flat on the ground. I don't think they're officially plantigrade because I think they lack like metatarsals and all that stuff. They're like flat-footed. I'm looking at this extra long talon thing and it's kind of freaky. It is freaky. And it'll fuck you up. Just ask that man in Florida. Oh, wait, you can't. He died. But we'll hear about that later. Still, it's just not going anywhere. I'm sitting. I'm still here. 
they can really mess you up with those claws, but actually they're probably more likely to just dig for fruit because these guys love fruit and they love fungus. And they're actually, speaking of swallowing things whole, these things can like swallow whole hunks of fruit, like a whole orange or like a plum. There's things called cassowary plums. And I watched a video of it, eat it and just swallow the whole plum whole. And you can see it like going down its throat. And then it just poops out the seed. Yeah. So they're like very important to um, seed dispersal in that way. Yeah. Oh, sure. We're talking about diet. Um, in terms of cassowary casanovas, they don't really exist. What a missed opportunity. I know. It seems like a shame. It's like just built in and then doesn't happen because they're typically solitary. They get together to mate. But then once the women lay the eggs, it's kind of like later days, like the women just go away. So the men do all of the raising. Dudes carry the prudes. So they'll like build a nest out of foliage, kind of resembling like a mattress on the forest floor. So these guys live in the forests, unlike emus and ostriches, which kind of live in like open areas. These guys live in forested areas and even some like mangrove outcropping. So kind of like trees within water. So like I was saying about the dudes taking care of the broods, they build kind of the nest mattress. They incubate the eggs and then take care of them up to a point, up to the point where the little baby cassowaries fly the coop, or in this case, walk away from the coop. Baby cassowaries are so cute. They're kind of like tan and striped. They're very sweet looking. They sound adorable. Yeah, they really are. And one of the videos I watched said they're like super playful. They'll like play hide and seek amongst the like the trees in the forest. Adorable. But I learned a cool new vocab word called ratite. So, hmm. so a cassowary is a kind of ratite, meaning it's a bird. It's a large flightless bird. So other ratites include ostriches, uh-huh. emus, uh-huh. rias. Like Rhea Perlman? Yeah, Rhea Perlman. She's related to the cassowary. Now, rias are kind of ostrich-like birds that live in South America. Interesting. Yeah, and then another interesting thing about the ratites, all of them. So flight birds, birds that fly, essentially have an, an extra bone structure on their sternum. For us, it'd be like an extra having an extra bone between our boobies, a place for the musculature of our wings to attach. So the ratites lack this keel, is what it's called, this extra structure on the sternum. So even if they did have the wings to fly, they wouldn't necessarily have the bone structure for which the musculature could attach to allow for flight. Mm. Some other fun facts. So these guys can jump up to seven feet, which is nuts, and they can get up to about six feet tall. So these are big-ass birds. Yeah. Big-ass birds. Yeah, that's the thing when you're describing this claw on it. I went and looked at the picture and I found that there's this photo where it's a human hand next to the claw of one of these ah! things. And then oh, like gosh. it's larger than a human hand. And and then the pictures of it standing, it's the legs are so massive. It almost looks like, you know, a bad community theater style bird costume, you know? Yes, exactly. It's It looks almost like the size of a human leg. It's really terrifying. Yeah, they're super freaky looking. And then if you do an image search on them, you can get a lot of them with like where the camera is like looking straight at it and it just looks like angry and prehistoric. It's and with that weird cask on its head. It's just yeah. nuts. 
And speaking of, they make crazy, like, guttural sounds. And there is some conjecture that maybe the cask kind of allows for this sound production. Because they make these kind of, I can't even try to do it. It's like, they make these sounds called booms. And then they also hiss and rumble. But it's just this, like, it's almost like a weird dinosaur growl or roar or something. It's not like a cute, like, tweet, tweet, tweet. It's like a, it comes from like deep within their body. It's so freaky sounding. Huh. One thing after another, I was like, these birds are nuts. Okay, so now the moment we've all been waiting for. So I've made it seem like these birds are like, you know, man killers, but really only two, I think in documented history, two people have been killed by them. And one was a kid in 1926 who was just being an idiot and like, messing with a cassowary, like, trying to kill it. And the cassowary was like, fuck you. Slice, slice. You're dead. But the other one was this guy that I mentioned in Florida who had two of them. And essentially, they, like, most cassowary attacks, it's driven by food. So when these cassowaries get in relationships with humans, they become reliant on the human for food but they're just naturally very aggressive when it comes to food. So if the human has the food and they want the food, they'll come after you for it and they might kill you in the process. And being that, that they can jump so high and jump so well, and then they've got that crazy, like, super talon, they can just scrape you up. But yeah, so they're just super aggressive. So it's like, you don't want to be coming at them and trying to feed them. It seems like feeding is where it can get really, really dangerous. Even though you you might not be approaching them like as a threat necessarily, they see that food and they want that food and they will stop at nothing to get it. <laughs> Don't want to be the person that's charged with feeding cassowaries. I'm going to go on record. Right. I, And I mean, again, this happened in one of those um, situations where it was a man that had a lot of exotic wildlife. Um, you have to have permits to be able to keep them and he didn't have those permits and they're not they're not easy animals to care for and they're highly dangerous and aggressive so again it's like don't support exotic wildlife trade don't support like roadside zoos that might have this stuff because these birds are not for amateurs they're not pets they're not fun and they will f you up and it's not like they want to it's not like they like are mad or threatened they just want their food. Yeah, I can get it. And they don't, you know, clearly like the concept of your life is different right? than it is to you. Right. They're just hungry and they have these big claws and like they've been not killing you so far. So like now they're going to actually kill you. It was cool until now, but now it's over. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much all I have. But do you have any cassowary queries? Cassowaries? How did you know about these? It's just been another one of those things that, like, visually I've just kind of known about them but haven't really taken an opportunity to follow that line of inquiry Sure. before. You know, when my mom had her realization that dinosaur birds are still out there, I was like, okay, I want to do another dinosaur bird. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that bird looks like a dinosaur. Even with that comb thing, it kind of looks like, I think they're like herbivore dinosaurs that kind of have that, thing on the top of their head that they use as a resonator snout yeah to make a sound yeah so look them up if you've never seen them but i loved your comparison with a bad community theater bird 
It's exactly what they. That's what the. Like. That's what that the legs, especially. It's the like legs. The yeah. way they sprawl out too. I know. It's like as if they're painted onto like white tennis shoes or something, you know? Right. Like Ted's. <laughs> it's very like think about like Big Bird's feet and the way those like hit the ground. It kind of looks similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does, and it's a big bird. It sure is a big bird. Oh, that picture of the gloved hand with the talon across the front of it that like. It's like the gloved hand and a talon that's about, you know, half a cubit, if you will. Right. I will. Fucking gross. <laughs> yeah. They're intense. Well, yeah, I need to go remember a time before <laughs> I knew about that bird. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. You know that I'm generally bird averse and like. Yeah. This is like me with the octopus. Yeah. We all have our things. Yeah, I feel that. All right, but I'll go let you take a break and recover. Thanks. I appreciate that. Is your sink not draining again? Have you poured enough Drano down your tub to annihilate an entire pond full of fish? Are you proud of your long, luscious locks but hate what they do to your drains? Then call on us, Sal and Sammy, the the Anaconda Anaconda Brothers. Brothers. Unlike traditional plumbers who use metaphorical snakes to clear clogs from your drains, we use real snakes. You heard us correctly. Our crack team of highly trained snakes can't wait to slither down your drain to eliminate your toughest clogs. Even the greasiest, oldest, and hairiest of clogs are no match for our amazing snakes. You'd be amazed at what a tiny little forked tongue can do to safely and naturally break down any drain obstruction. No matter the drain size or the clog size, our tiniest garter snake up to the mighty king cobra is ready for the challenge. Just watch as we attach a brand clubby snake safe leash to the tail of Sally, one of our team's top clog crushers. Next, we will also fit her with a brand clubby herpa headlamp so she can safely navigate this tiny dark drain. Now, we will send her down to crush Crush that clog. clog. Now we wait for the hiss. That's Sally's way of telling us she is finished. Crushing that clog. Then we just pull her up out of the drain and congratulate her on a job well done. Call us today at 555-BOAS for your very own Snake Snake Console Snakeshin. Book a Console Snakeshin with us in the next 15 minutes and you'll get a free exotic snake upgrade. And watch your friends just swoon when they hear a Ramsey's Pythons cleared your pipes. What's that smell, Mike? It's the feedback. We're back in the feedback. Paul from Santa Fe wants to know, what's a badger's favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, you know, earlier today, it's so funny. I was thinking, like, what's an anteater's favorite ice cream flavor? But I'll go with badger. This is fun. I mean, I know there are different types of badgers. There's a honey badger. Maybe they like a honey, like a light, sweet honeycomb. Ooh, yeah. Or what about the old world badger? The old world badger, that makes me think that they're like old fashioned. And I always consider like an old fashioned ice cream flavor to be like butter pecan for some reason. I think of butter pecan as kind of a straight ahead European kind of old world flavor. That's right. For sure. I don't know, maybe a cherry cordial or something. There must be some species of badgers that 
prefer a sherbet? Uh, always, you know, for those dairy-free, those fr- dairy-free badgers out there. I don't know, Meredith. We're kind of not really coming up with an answer. Is our official is is our official position that we need more information? Yeah, I think we need to be a little bit more specific in terms of species. Yeah, and that maybe Paul, you should ask the badger. I don't know why. I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe ask a badger. Ask a badger. Another segment. Ugh, stop me. Anytime. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. Ask a badger. So John from Oxford wants to know, what's the American bison's favorite activity? This automatically makes me think about, and I didn't have this in mind when I received this question. This just popped into my head, actually. So for some reason, in our post-tonal theory class, Anthony and I came up with all of these. This was like back in the grad school days, the Gomer days, if you will. We always had these animals that would like help, like quote unquote, help us with our homework. So I think there was like a pterodactyl that was like really good at like set theory. Then there was like the calculating bison who helped as well somewhere in there. So maybe like the bison likes to do like atonal matrices. I respectfully disagree. I don't think anybody likes to do atonal matrices. Which, for those of you who haven't had to go through, like, music school, music theory, that is, it's essentially a use of a matrix to help you write a piece of music. I don't really want to go into much more than that. It's one of the several moments in a music school where if you watch the group of people in front of you, you can see the ones who are scared of math completely disengage from the rest of the room and go into a sort of experience of fear and the ones who love math sit up straight and get very excited because this will be something that they will be quantifiably good at yeah yeah i'm not terrible at math but i can't say i like was particularly into any of it but anyhow that's my take on what the bison is into i guess bison like math generally so they would have been in that latter category of people that sat up straight and got excited but you disagree mike what do you think i think it's chess club (laughs) <laughs> I could, yeah, I could see that. I think that they're thinkers, Granted, they're strategic. They found these pathways through the American countryside that we still use today in our automobiles, you know. I think that... Sure. I think the bison are learned. That's great. I like that idea. I mean, you could even take that further to say that they'd be great at, like, civilization building games, because that's essentially what they did. Sure. Yeah, logistics games, mapping games. Your tickets to rides, your settlers of Catan, mm, you know. I do know. All that stuff. Well, a fish position. Okay, ding, so a, a fish Ding, ding. ding. <laughs> okay. Bertrude from Billings has written us, and Bertrude wants to know, do centipedes prefer watching the Winter Olympics or the Summer Olympics? Hmm. I think what I would say, based on what I know about at least house centipedes, is that they like kind of warmer, damper environments and that they kind of come out, so to speak, like in the warmer weather. So I would go with summer, but you might have different thoughts on this. Well, I have the same reasoning, but a slightly different conclusion, because I think for that reason that they enjoy the Winter Olympics because it's so different than their quotidian experience. Sure. Yeah. Like, they don't need to see people running or jumping or doing things in kind of hot, damp environments. They live that life every day. Why would they want to watch somebody else do that? For sure. I hear that. ski jumping and 
you know, figure skating and all that kind of cold weather stuff, they can kind of watch from the comfort of our homes. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I just love the idea of a little centipede, like, having big dreams watching figure skating. Yeah. They'd have to get a lot really of very sweet. little skates. I know. The jumps would be named off of, like, jumps from the front half of the front half of their ice skates and lands on the rear half of the rear third of their skates, you know? <laughs> it would be, like, a very... It would really complicate the naming of jumps. Yeah. The amount of, like, judging criteria would just... It would almost be too much, but... Uh, house divided. House divided, but kind of an agreement. But anyway, yeah, ding, 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 ding. ding. <laughs> Meredith, this was a delight. Um, thank you. No, thank you. That was really fun. I'm so glad to hear about Garyols. Yeah, I was pretty excited to find out about your terrifying murder birds <laughs> with the community theater. Murder birds. What's the name of them again? Cassowaries. Cassowaries. That's right. <laughs> Ugh. Well, all right. <laughs> Keep the questions coming, animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of...